Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the History at World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. Each week I'll bring you a new podcast featuring a world expert who will delve deep into the pre-war period, the First World War, the interwar years, the Second World War, or even the early years of the Cold War. Now in this podcast, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, Dan talks with Professor Frank McDonough, a world-leading expert on the domestic side of Hitler's Germany. His new book, The Hitler Years, Triumph 1933-1939, to is a masterful popular history that explains how Hitler won over his population on his vision of a renewed Reich. In this podcast, the sheer level of detail about how Hitler rose to power will leave you aghast, as Professor McDonough provides us with an ever-necessary reminder about the dangers of unrelenting nationalism, a drive for former greatness, and an astonishing fanatical racism. Frank, this book has been a long time in the making. Yeah, well, you could say that I've been waiting all my life to, to write this book because, of course, I've been teaching for 30 years, been teaching the Third Reich for 30 years, and also I've written so many other books about the Third Reich. So I wanted to really, you know, before I pop my clogs, not that I'm going to, but I wanted to, you know, write a big definitive narrative history. And I think it's about time, you know, because William Shira's book was only, you know, 60 years ago um, and it's, it's largely out of date now and of course Shira had this kind of you know he had this kind of German you know the, the, the Sonderweg you know this kind of like the, the straight path of German history from Martin Luther all the way to Bismarck all the way to Hitler and that you know it was natural that Germany would have this sort of nationalistic taser you know roaming around the world of course nobody nobody believes that really you know the, the circumstances of the First World War really bring Hitler uh, towards prominence. It's not, not anything to do with Martin Luther. It's not as if Hitler's standing there going, oh, I'm on the special path of, of uh, German history here. So that's it. And also, you know, his, his language is really bad now. He, 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 when you look at it now, you know, he calls homosexuality an affliction. So I think it's sort of not really for, you know, the, the, the now generation, if you like. How deep are the roots of Nazism? Because surely some of it does go back beyond the First World War. You've got the 19th century ideas of you know, just imperialism, racial pseudoscience. 
those presumably play a part. I, th I think you can go back. You know, people say oh, it's it's a guy called Gobber now because he he stressed the you know, the master race theory. Some people say you know Hitler knew about Houston Stuart Chamberlain. He was this sort of eccentric British guy who wrote a book about the 19th century in which he talked about, you know, that only the Germans could be the master race. And, um, you know, people have said he was influenced by Nietzsche, whereas, you know, a lot of people say, well, not really, but, you know, the idea of the Superman and stuff like that. And, you know, and Hitler was influenced by, um, he was very influenced by, uh, you know, Austrian politics as well. Karl Luger, who was, he was like the, the sort of Lord Mayor of Vienna, when Hitler was living there during his Vienna period, and he was like a kind of, he tried to combine, you know, a popular nationalism with, with socialism. So some people say, oh, Hitler, you know, he maybe copied Luger. There's no evidence that he did. And he started to read pamphlets that came from his party, which do have many of the same ideas of Nazism. See, Hitler was a little bit like... It was a little bit like, you know, the Electric Light Orchestra, who I, I like. But, you know, people would say, but they're quite derivative of, of the Beatles. And in a way, you know, in a way, Hitler was a soaker up of ideas rather than an original thinker. You know, he wasn't really like, you know, Karl Marx, a, you know, a detailed scholar with a well-thought-out theory. You know, Hitler was the kind of guy who would buy all the Sunday papers and then he picked bits out of them, and then that would become his kind of philosophy for the day. Where does his journey begin? I think really, you know, when we go back and look at his pre-war period, there's a guy called um, Kubasek, his friend, August Kubasek, and he was his sort of teenage friend in Linz, where he lived in Austria. He regarded that as his hometown. In his will, his last will and testament, he calls it my hometown. And he was like his teenage friend. And they both had this ambition. Uh, Kubasek wanted to be um, you know, a classical, a classical pianist. And Hitler wanted to be an artist. Now they both applied. Kubasek applied for the Vienna Conservatoire of Music and he got in. And Hitler applied to the Vienna School of Art and he got turned down. So they went to live in Vienna. And the second time Hitler got turned down, um, he, he left, he stopped living with Kubasek. I think he was like ashamed that he wasn't going to be this great artist. And of course, he went to live in a, a young man's hostel. You know, he tries to portray that he's living like a tramp, but he wasn't like a tramp. It was like, it was like one of these sorts of um, souped up YMCAs, really. You know, you paid money, you were able to go there during the day. And Hitler was earning, we reckon Hitler was earning from postcards, really. He was drawing postcards of buildings. He's never very good at drawing people, interestingly enough. Um, and he, they reckon he, he made around about the level of, of, a, of a, a solicitor, a good solicitor. And yet he stayed in this sort of YMCA, you know, where he only had to pay like three kronen, which was like, you know, it was about, it was about like a, a shilling or something like that in British money at that time. So he must have had quite a lot of money at that time. And he, and he had an inheritance from his from his father. He, he was picking up his father's occupational pension after he died. So he goes on about this terrible Vienna period. But really, you know, Hitler was never this sort of penniless, poverty-stricken person. He came from quite a, you know, an elevated, you'd say more than middle class, I think. I think you'd sort of say his father. His father was the customs official for the whole of of Linz, you know, this is a, this is quite a big, and he wore a Habsburg uniform, and he sort of passes him off in Mein Kampf, 
Is he some kind of clerk? So that so all those influences fed in, but we don't before before nineteen fourteen we don't really see any anti Semitism. It's the war, it's the First World War that transforms Hitler. And it's the it's the fact that Germany loses the war. And you know, he says, doesn't he? He said, I only I only cried twice in my life. He said the first was when my mother died, and the second when I was in hospital at the end of the First World War and I was told Germany had lost and he and he said, I threw my head on the pillow and I said, It's all in vain. So, by the way, why did, why did Hitler join the German army rather than the Austro-Hungarian army, which was fighting on the same side during the First World War? Because he hated, he hated the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He thought it was a kind of racial melting pot. So he didn't see it as kind of racially pure. And he sort of saw himself, you know the way a lot of Austrians at that time, they sort of saw themselves as being German as well, and he did, you know, he, he had this idea that, you know, Austria-Hungary should have sort of assimilated with Germany already. So he did, he saw himself more as, uh, as German than he saw himself as Austrian. He didn't identify with the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And of course, because there were so many Jews in Vienna, he sort of said, oh, I, d I hated it when I went to Vienna to see all these Jews and all the, this kind of ethnic melting pot. He said, because of course in Linz, it was sort of, everyone was white, there weren't that many Jews, so it wasn't an ethnic melting pot and he didn't like that. So are, the seed, so are the seeds of the Third Reich really planted in the sort of revolutionary terrain of post-war Germany? I think so, but remember, Hitler really thought of that imperial state. He didn't venerate it. Some, this is where I don't go for this sole continuity thesis, because Hitler did not venerate the imperial German Empire. He thought that, you know, it was, it was uh, decadent, and he thought its aims were too limited. So in other words, he said, you know, the, the German Empire should have went further. It should have tried to take more territory in the East. And he said the monarchy sort of hampered it. You know, the monarchy hampered it. They should have created a kind of more egalitarian society, you know, based on equality of opportunity. And, you know, and then we might have had an army that was, you know, capable of, of, of winning the war. So he, he had a kind of, you know, these two, the two elements of Hitler, I think, to understand him, I would say, if you want to understand his ideas from Mein Kampf and how they feed forward. I would say race. Race is really important. And by race, I mean, you know, racism. You know, he wanted uh, the German race to be sort of supreme. He talks in Mein Kampf, he draws on a kind of social Darwinistic view of the world, that there are pure races. And races that aren't pure die away. And he talks about all the empires that died away. Oh, the Romans, oh, you know, they died away because they, they got a Spaniard in as, you know, as, as, the, as the emperor, you know. And then he says, oh, you know, Napoleon, he, when he went more international, that's when it went wrong, you know. And then he says the British, they started out well, he said, but then, you know, they became decadent. So we had this idea, you know, if he could get a racially pure society, you know, that would be key. And race meant, you know, Jews. The Jews were the danger. They were the people. This, this was this Jewish world conspiracy. Now, we know, you know, this, this is complete, you know, fiction. There isn't, there isn't a Jewish world conspiracy. There's never been a Jewish world conspiracy. The conspiracy was in his head. It was as mad as those people who, 
who think, you know, the, Neil Armstrong didn't land on the moon and, you know, and Lee Harvey Oswald didn't really kill John F. Kennedy when we know he did. You know, so it, it's like that. It's like he had this idea of a Jewish world conspiracy. So the Jews, and you look at it, you look all through his career, even when he goes in the bunker, you know, the last thing he says is that it was the Jews who started the war. It was the Jews who, who, who caused all the problems in the war. They, they were behind the bombing. They were behind Roosevelt. They were behind Churchill. They were behind Stalin. It's all madness. It's complete madness. But he believed in that. That was his racial theory. And his racial theory went into, this is why he also had sterilization in Germany. So he was trying to make a kind of racially pure. And he took away antisocial people, you know, the, the uh, gypsies, they had to have their status taken away and their citizenship. You know, he even took away alcoholics, didn't he? The long-term unemployed, they ended up in concentration camps, prostitutes, vagrants. So that was race, but race also encompassed anti-Semitism as well. And also then it encompassed the Slavs. So they all got into this race. The race was, we want to be the top race. We want a totally pure German society with no Jews in it. Because of course he blamed the Jews for the First World War, the defeat. He said they stabbed Germany in the back at a vital stage of the war and that Germany couldn't win the war. And the second element of his uh, ideology is space. Space is, he wants, he wants to find living space, Lebensraum, he wants to find living space. And he says in Mein Kampf, you know, if we want living space, we'll never get living space in Western Europe. And he sort of says, but we don't really want living space in Western Europe because after all, he said, a lot of them are Aryans. You know, he said, you know, look at the Danes, there's more blonde people in Denmark than there is in Germany and the Swedes. He said, you know, I've got no, I've got no sort of campaign to get rid of Aryans, he said. He said, but I have got a campaign in the East. He said, in the East, he said, I think there are, you know, he has, in his sort of way of looking at the world, they were inferior peoples who could be driven out of this area. And of course, within space is genocide. Because really, if you're going to clear these people off in, of these areas, he thought then he was going to create this great rural society where all these German settlers would all come back from the rest of Europe. There weren't enough German speakers around Europe to fill all these farms. And he said, you know, if we're looking for space, we'll find it in the Soviet Union. We'll find it in the breadbasket of the Ukraine and in the Caucasus with oil. You know, and that was his idea of this fantastic rural society that would grow. And of course, implicit in space was, you've got to have a war. You know, so those two elements sort of run through Hitler. And once you understand that, you can understand the development of the Third Reich. Frank, we're talking a lot about Hitler in this conversation. Is the, is the Third Reich simply unimaginable without that personal, charismatic leadership of Adolf Hitler? I think, you know, obviously the 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 great man theory of history uh you know it, it has gone out of fashion you know because we know now that you know no one single individual can change society so we know of course that you know economic factors are important the conditions are important and also you know as we see in modern society events are important events are important and decisions on events are important so all those things are important but you'd have to say that in spite of all this, Hitler was, you know, an exceptional individual in history because he creates this Nazi party from nothing. You know, he creates it from nothing. First of all, he tries to overthrow the state 
in uh, in Bavaria, doesn't he? And he ends up in prison. He, he realizes that's not going to work. And then he says, "I'm going to create a political party and win through the ballot box." And he takes this party, you know, from 2.8 percent to 37.2. And you sort of say, "Oh, everyone, you see in some you know general histories of theory, he only got 37.2. Hang on a minute, he went from 2 percent to 37.2. No other political party." has started from such a low uh, place in 1928 and in five years is now the most popular party in Germany. Look at the Labour Party, started out in 1900, never got power until 1924 and never got an overall majority until 1945, 45 years. There's no, there's no sort of... Um, there's no comparison with any other party than this. And also he doesn't just create the party, he creates its ideology. He also even creates the swastika, you know, and he, and, he, and he has this idea of this, you know, this people's army, doesn't he, you know, the stormtroopers as well. So Hitler is kind of integral to the whole situation. He comes from nothing. I mean, really, when you look at it, when you think about it, his first salary job is Chancellor of Germany, and he's 43. That's his first job. <laughs> but why? Why was he able to do that? I really think that, you know, having gone to the personality, you've then got to say the location of that personality. If Hitler had been somewhere else, if he'd been in America, he wouldn't have got anywhere. You know, he was not the type of person who could possibly have got on in American politics. If he'd been in Britain, he wouldn't have got anywhere. I mean, we know Oswald Mosley, pretty good politician, didn't get anywhere. So. He had to be in that location. There had to be the crisis in Germany for them to need this individual and those events, those economic events. So can you see it's like a kind of amalgamation between the events and the individual? If an exceptional individual is in the right place at the right time, then they can make a big difference in history. If they're not, you know, if he was in New Zealand, we'd never know. Just, just talk about that guy who used to go down the pub and rant and rave on about, you know, a master race of New Zealanders, you know. So he just found his party with like a handful of followers? Yes. I mean, he, I mean there's only like sort of, you know, 25 of them when he, when he turns up. So it's a very small, it's a small group of people. It starts off as the German Workers' Party. He actually attends a meeting. He's spying on them for the army. So he's actually a spy who goes to a meeting of this party for the army. He's in the pay of the army to sort of observe groups that are trying to be uh, nationalistic and social, socialistic. And the army sort of thinks, look, we, we can control these groups. So the army is thinking, look, we can sponsor this kind of group. And we know, you know, some people have said, oh, you know, the army, he was a creature of the army. And then look at all the members of the army, you know. Somebody said, you know, the early Nazi party's slogan was show us your medals, because nearly all of them had been in the First World War, and all of them had, a, you know, an Iron Cross. If you didn't have an Iron Cross, you were nothing. He, li he likes what he sees in that meeting, then. He likes what he sees, but he, 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 instead of just being a spy, he wasn't a very good spy, because in the meeting he stands up and asks a question, and then he gives a little speech you know, about nationalism. And he says, well, Anton Drexler, he's a locksmith, he's the leader. And, and he comes up to him, you know, he said, I don't think your party's got it right here. You know, you need to be more nationalistic. And at the end of the meeting, Drexler gives him a card and says, why don't you join us? So then he joins early on and straight away, they realize he's a great speaker. He makes his way by speaking in beer halls. And that's how he makes his way. And first of all, he's purely an agitator. 
he's got no idea that he's going to be a politician and he sort of gets on the coattails of sort of old-fashioned army figures like Ludendorff, General Ludendorff and von Kahr, he's the kind of right-wing leader of the Bavarian government and he sort of thinks, oh, you know, I, I'm going to take over the government with these people but sort of he sort of sees himself as a, a helper for other people's dictatorships rather than his own because he keeps saying, doesn't he, you know, in his speeches, I'm just the drummer. You know, and as we know, you know, Ringo wasn't really the best one in the Beatles, was he? <laughs> But when he when he's giving these great speeches, it, they're they're falling on on receptive ears. Yes, because remember, after the First World War, there's tremendous uh, unemployment in Germany. There's revolution. There's fighting in the streets. I mean, I I said in a previous book of mine, you know, um, you know, in Weimar Germany, every night was all right for fighting. You know, every 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 time there was a a, a demonstration by one group. There were all these paramilitaries, all these soldiers going around in all these sort of popular parties. Hitler was just one of many. I mean, it was a bit like sort of, you know, like Liverpool in the Merseybeats era. It was kind of like there was loads of these right-wing parties and Hitler couldn't really pick him out from that group. He just decided he wanted to overthrow the government. And of course, circumstances played into his hands. Of course, there was the great inflation, the mark collapses, the famous photo of the woman with the wheelbarrow full of money. Uh, then America steps in with the, the, the Doors plan to try and help Germany pay for reparations. And there's a bit of stability then. And then, of course, loans come in from America. And they say that's the golden age of the Weimar period. But in 1929, the American stock exchange collapses. And, of course, then Germany is plunged into this terrible economic depression um, with six million unemployed and when you think of the big families that people had then, you're talking 30 million um, are affected. I interviewed a woman called Sigrid Crane. She lived in a place called Garmisch, which is like where they held the, it's like a skiing resort now. And she said that, she said, you only had to go through the streets of that town to realize the hunger, that this had really affected the rural population. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that Hitler goes from 2% of votes in 28 and he goes to 37% in four years. So he comes to prominence in the period of the worst depths of the depression. And what's his message to people who are suffering? His message is that I'm gonna put people back to work. I'm gonna help the rural community in particular. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a new deal for farmers. Um, I'm gonna get rid of these department stores so that the, the, you know, the German sort of uh, craftsman can have a shop again. You know, and also he says as well, the communists, I'm going to get rid of them. He said, I'm going to bring you stability. And people have said that, you know, this, this sort of theme of stability, it, 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 it really resonated in the rural areas. Because remember, Nazism, we always think that we owe Nazism or, you know, national socialism. It must have been a gang of working class guys, you know, coming out of factories and all the rest of it. No, they weren't the people who voted for Hitler's party. It was actually rural people, farmers, agricultural workers. It was those people who, who were the, that was the key place. And they'd be Protestants. They wouldn't be Catholics because the Catholic centre party... Uh, you know, drew all the Catholics. They voted on lines of religion. They voted, the Catholics voted for the Centre Party and the Protestants voted for Hitler. So the, the, the classic Protestant uh, rural person voted for Hitler and he also attracted people, I suppose this is what we see with populism, he attracted people who'd never voted before. 
So he brought people who'd never voted before and also propaganda. You know, people say, oh, you know, it was Hitler's speeches that won over the German people in that period. But we know that Hitler didn't actually appear in those rural areas. It was the propaganda from someone like Goebbels. He would send out, you know, sort of um, movie units that would go out, create a little sort of movie a theatre, and then they'd play sort of propaganda films about, you know, the, the need for the uh, national community to come together. So what he was saying was, look, vote for me and I'll bring stability and I'll bring you a national community and I'll stop all this division and all this fighting in the streets. And he sort of said, you know, and to blame for that are the Marxists and the Marxists are controlled by Jews and to blame for our economic problems, it's the Jews as well because they're, they're involved in Wall Street, so I'll get rid of them. So it, it, some people say, you know, it was a flight away, for, you know, it was a flight towards stability. And you see that a lot, you know, a lot of people say, I voted for them, you know, to bring stability to society. So he offered a kind of utopian future you know, it wasn't all, we look at it now, because we look at it with hindsight and say, oh God, look at the horrendous policies that he was putting forward. But when you're in a desperate situation, sometimes, you know, people will vote for exceptional sort of policies that now seem sort of dreadful. But at the time, underneath that policy, he was saying, yes, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Germany the greatest power in Europe. You know, I'm going to restore our pride again. You know, if someone comes up to you in the street and says, oh, you're a nice guy, you're wonderful, you're, you're very good looking, you're a great guy, you know, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I like you. <laughs> you know, and in a way, he was a flatterer. He flattered the German people as well. Uh, but he gave them a vision. The vision was, we are going to, you know, have a great united society. He didn't say we're going to take over the world by force because he never did that. And in my book, I show that in actual fact, he's a liar. He lies to the German people and he's always talking about peace and all the rest of it. And in private, we see all the private documents in that book and we see that he's planning for war more or less once he comes to power. You've really opened my eyes to the kind of the politics, the utopian, the messaging of Hitler. I've always thought that it was very dependent on thuggery and violence and intimidation. Did that also play a part? Well, physical violence was important in the big cities. But as I explained before, the Nazis weren't doing well in the big cities. The physical violence wasn't doing well because if it was and they were winning the fights, in fact, to be perfectly honest, they were losing a lot of the fights because, you know, these were industrial workers, you know, who were fighting them and were communists, right? And they weren't winning votes in the big cities. So they didn't win votes in classic working class areas. In working class areas, they went for the communists or they went for the social democrats in those areas. The social democrats, by the way, are not like you know the social democrats in Britain. These were socialists. These were more or less would be sort of to, even to the left of, of uh, the current Labour Party, for example. So they were. So you had all this group who stayed loyal. Working class people stayed loyal to, to the working class parties. So really, Nazism didn't get in those areas. You know, it was tough to go down there and be a Nazi without, of course, getting into a fight. In the rural areas, it was different. The appeal wasn't, there wasn't fights in the rural areas. In the rural areas, they were selling the propaganda to people, you know, and they were selling them, you know, an idea that they're going to get out of this terrible depression. They're going to own their own farms. He promised them an hereditary farm law. He was going to have special subsidies that was going to go to agriculture. So for them, it was a different world. And of course, remember, there are no Jews in those rural areas. This is the strange thing. Although the Nazi party is fantastically anti-Semitic, in the areas that it makes ground, there are no Jews there. It's virtually Jew-free areas. 
And in the places where there are a lot of Jews, the communists do tend to do better and they tend to do worse. So they can't appeal to that grouping. Who comes to them in the, in the cities? It's the middle classes who come to them. It's the white collar workers, it's the teachers, it's the lawyers, because they fear that they're gonna lose their jobs next. It's always the fear. The fear of the middle class person is that, you know, there's gonna, I'm gonna lose my house. You know, I'm gonna lose my job. You know, this is the panic of the middle classes, you know, and crime is terrible, crime's awful. Of course, the crime never comes down their streets, but it's the fear that, that occupies their mind. And he played on that fear. And so his big gain in the cities is in the suburban middle-class areas, and they start to come over to him. So he starts to unite rural Protestant Germany and middle-class suburban Germany, and he brings them all together unites them all. And as we know, it's not like a kind of, you know, uh, it's not like an, a massive overall majority here, but you know, 37, 38%, it's quite a big proportion of the electorate in the Weimar period. He, the Nazis are the most popular party in the Weimar period. So he's got to the point where he's leading the most popular party in, in the German parliament, the Reichstag. Where does he go from there? Well, first of all, he transitions because really in Britain, say say we, we look at the British system, it's been sort of pointed out that if there'd been a first-past-the-post system in Germany, then Hitler would have gained an overall majority. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. But of course, it was proportional representation was the political system in Germany. And with that, as you know, it's very hard to win an overall majority in a proportional representation system with 37% of the vote. I mean, you know, uh, David Cameron got 36% of the vote in 1910. Yeah, in, in uh, 2010, yeah, he's taking us back to 1910. Uh, you know, in 2010, he got 36% of the vote and that ended him up with an overall majority of about 11 so you can see that he would have, in Britain, of course, because he was the leader of the largest party, the Queen would have called for Hitler to make him Chancellor 
if she'd been German. Well, hang on, she is German. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, Hindenburg, President Hindenburg, you've got to look at him because really he was trying to create a popular right-wing authoritarian government in Germany. Problem was, he couldn't find a charismatic leader. He tried this guy called Heinrich Bruning. You know, he looked like an accountant. You know, uh, and he acted like an accountant. You know, he brought in all these austerity measures. Then he went for Franz von Papen, you know, a, a communist leader called him, you know, a, a Nazi in a pinstripe suit. You know, and he tried to sort of, you know, uh, take Germany massively to the right and he wanted to create a dictatorship himself. And then, you know, we've got to remember before Hitler comes to power as a civilian, a general becomes German Chancellor, General, you know, Kurt von Schleicher. He becomes Chancellor. So the, the previous Chancellor to that is a general. So you can see how, but all of those people don't have, they don't, they're not leaders of political parties and they have no popularity. So Hindenburg's still scratching his head. Hindenburg comes badly out of history, but he gets a rough deal, I think, because really he was trying to find any alternative he could to Hitler on the right, though, what Hindenburg did not want to do was create a centre-left coalition. He wanted to freeze them out. So really, you know, you can say Hindenburg, because he was searching for the right, it was the wrong place to go. Because Hitler, remember, when I was saying before, he'd united the right of German society and started to bring over, you know, very influential middle-class people by then. So exactly when does Hitler dismantle the Weimar Republic? Declare himself dictator, set up the Third Reich. He's Führer. I think when you look at when he's offered the job of Chancellor, Franz von Papen famously says uh, in his memoirs, you know, that he said to Hindenburg, don't worry, we, we'll bring him in, in a coalition and I'll have him squealing like a mouse in six months' time. So they underestimate Hitler. I think many people underestimated Hitler. You know, Chamberlain underestimated Hitler, said he was a completely non-person and all the rest of it you know and and also you know von papen underestimated hitler hitler was a diffident man you know at base he was kind of a you know kind of like a petty bourgeois guy uh, who would be more suited to working in an office when you met him no one would be impressed by hitler he was an unprepossessing person but albert speer puts it right you know in, in his autobiography and he says but then he invited me to see him speak and he said, he was electrifying. He said, I couldn't believe that it was the same, you know, unprepossessing man I'd seen during the day. So it was his speaking that where, where his charisma came out and came forward. But that couldn't be seen in sort of interpersonal relations, which explains why they thought they could control him. When he comes to power, he acts really quickly. I mean, it's almost a whirlwind. You know, the first chapter of the book, you know, it's almost a whirlwind of events. You know, he comes to power... You know, you know, straight away calls a general election. Then there's the Reichstag fire. You know, whether the Nazis started it or not, it seems to be that they didn't start it. But they certainly exploited it. Then, of course, he, uh, he brings in the Enabling Act. He wins the election, brings in the Enabling Act and gets MPs, basically deputies, to vote the parliament out of existence. And then a few, a few weeks later, 
He, he, he destroys all the political parties, bans and prohibits them all, and he only has one legal party, the Nazi party. Then he starts his drive against the Jews. He has a boycott of Jews, starts to drive Jews out of the civil service, starts to think about his first racial policies, you know, mentions that he's going to bring in, you know, sterilisation law, for example. Then he, then he leaves the League of Nations, you know, which, of course, he's got to leave the League of Nations if he wants to act unilaterally. So it's a whirlwind of events. I mean, that's why, you know, the book sort of starts. I start the book because, of course, it's a narrative and it's a, it's a story. And I start it right there on New Year's Day with Hitler in his, in his, um, in his apartment and looking at the papers. Was, was there a particular moment when the German people realised they they'd suddenly transitioned into this dictatorship? Well, this is where we come to another, I mentioned earlier on about the ideology, but here's another sort of insight I'll give over the Third Reich, is that you've got to understand the Third Reich as a kind of coalition. So the Nazis don't just take over and control the whole of society. Hitler has to make an agreement with other people. He comes to power with the agreement of the conservatives, the old-fashioned aristocratic conservatives. So he rules with them in a kind of coalition. And of course, the army, the army are important as well. And big business, he needs big business as well. So the Third Reich is not just Hitler. In fact, you know, at the end of the war, Hitler says, you know, the problem with me and why I've lost this war is I didn't really have a proper revolution. He said, I should have got rid of the army leadership and I should have went along with what he says that. In, in the bunker, I should, have, I should have gone that way. And of course he says, and, and look at the way they betrayed me, you know, the bomb plot. And then he says, with big business, he said, maybe I should have controlled them more. Um, and he said, the party, I kept the party out of the centre of power. Well, you've got to remember in the Nazi party is, the Nazi party really doesn't get in to the key places in power. Look at his own cabinet. His own cabinet at the start only contains, you know, three Nazis and one of them is, uh, uh, you know, Goring, who, who, who is, who is um, a minister without portfolio. The others are just um, traditional conservative um, politicians. I mean, his finance minister, for example, was the finance minister of von Schleicher. He, he takes six of his ministers, keeps them in his own cabinets. They're still there in 1945. The same finance minister who's got a really long name that I don't want to sort of bore you with. But he, he's still there in 1945, you know, and, and you know, and he sort of, he doesn't want to move against the civil service too much. He, he can't move against the army. The army's too strong for him. And of course, big business is important because he wants rearmament. So really, it's kind of like, I would call it a power cartel. The power cartel involves the army because they've got power, they can overthrow him. It involves the Nazi elite and the SS, and it involves big business. And those are the three groups, really. And they're all fighting, if you like, for kind of like control over the whole system. So Hitler sort of becomes the leader of, of what remains a coalition for a long, long time, you know. And you could say the army is not broken until after the bomb plot, when Hitler starts to really think, I should have, you know, had ideal, he brings in ideological training for officers and so on. But they're all, you know, he says, I've looked at all these people, he said, who were involved in this bomb plot. Every single one of them is called von this and von that. He said, they're all from the aristocracy. For, foreign policy, we call Chamberlain's foreign policy towards Hitler, it was appeasement. 
how, how do you characterise Hitler's foreign policy? Does he have a plan or is he just like a shark just getting some water over the gills? I think, you know, this is this idea of that he's got, a, a, you know, an, un, an unfolding plan. I think with Hitler, there is a plan. There's a sort of planning outline. So Hitler's like a kind of, he'll always have a kind of to-do list with Hitler. The problem is that he doesn't stick to his to-do list. We've all done these to-do lists, you know, and we, 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 we decide on number three, we've missed out on that day. And Hitler was a little bit like that. He did have a plan, I think, as I said before, his plan was to gain living space for Germany, to overthrow the Treaty of Versailles. And he thought by overthrowing the Treaty of Versailles, he could bring a lot of these conservatives with him. So the, and the army, that they, they were in favour of that, and the people. So in other words, overthrowing the Treaty of Versailles was a popular policy, but that wasn't his policy. He had a bigger policy. His policy was war and living space, and the German people didn't really know that, and neither did his sort of alliance partners know that. So what we get is a kind of, um, he says, doesn't he, I move with the, with the assurance of a sleepwalker, so he also thinks, you know, he can exploit situations. He's a gambler. He gambles, you know, sort of, you know, when his, his, when his army sort of generals say to him, you can't march into the Rhineland, he says, why? They say, because the French and the British are too strong. You march into the Rhineland, they'll start a preventative war. We can't, we can't meet the strength of the French army. The French army's got 1.5 million. We've got about 250,000. We can't meet that, that. So Hitler says, yeah, but I'm saying the French army will do nothing. He says, factor that into, into your uh, prediction and what, what happens. And they were terrified, you know, that, you know, when they marched in the Rhineland, the French, the French didn't do anything. You know, and then and when he comes with other things, other things come out where he, he exploits situations. You see that quite a lot. I mean, for example, take the, um, take the occupation of Austria. You know, and that's, going back to William Shira's book, he calls it the rape of Austria, he calls it, you know, implying that Austria didn't want to be taken over by the, uh, by the Germans, which is completely untrue, you know. There was like sort of, <laughs> most of the population was waiting for him, you know, with flowers when he, when he crossed the border. But the actual way he does it, he wants to have a union between Austria and Germany, but he wants it to evolve so he invites the, the uh, Schuschning, he's the Austrian Chancellor, he invites him in 1938, um, February I think it is, he invites him over to the Berghof, that's his kind of, that's his Graceland. So he invites him there in the afternoon with his foreign minister, takes him to a room on his own. Then he gives him like a bullying rant for an hour and says, look, you know, you've got to sort this situation in Austria. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring in this guy to be vice chancellor. I want you to bring in a finance minister who's pro-Nazi. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I want you to do that. And he said, I want you to sign this agreement now that we're going to have an agreement where we move towards, you know, like a roadmap. Here's a roadmap of how we get the Union of Austria. Not straight away, he said, but just sign it, you know. And then Schuschning comes up with this idea that he can't sign it because, you know, the president has to sign this piece of paper and all that. Anyway, uh, he's getting angry, very angry. And this is how Hitler would, would operate. Operated often like a gangster. So what he did was he opens the door of his office and he shouts. He's got three of his military leaders waiting outside. And he shouts to one of them. He shouts, Cato! Shouts right along the corridor, and of course, he's standing there. Ribbentrop says he sees Shushning, you know, 
he's having a fag, you know, he's, he's like, he's terrified. And he brings him into the room, Shushding is told to go outside. And when he gets in the room, he just smiles at Keetle. It's just, it's just a, it's just a bullying exercise. So Shushning now goes back to, um, to Austria uh, and he calls a referendum. And then Hitler sort of hits the roof. How dare he defy me? And then he decides to take over Austria straight away. So you see that that's more opportunism. That's a sort of opportunism of events. And you see that as well in, um, you know, in the Czechoslovakian crisis. He, you know, he, he, he sort of, um, he wants to take over Czechoslovakia, but he, he accepts the Munich Agreement. But then look at, look at the Nazi-Soviet Pact, which is sort of the last event that leads to the Second World War. Again, he doesn't plan that. Even when the Soviet Union is starting to put out feelers to, to the German government to say, look, you know, we don't think that the, uh, the British and the French are really serious about having an alliance with us. But they, he won't bite on that. He said, yeah, but we'll be humiliated. We start to enter in clandestine relations. And remember, if you go to Mein Kampf, he can't sign the Nazi-Soviet pact because that's at the centre of his whole plan. His whole plan is based on taking over the Soviet Union, but he's flexible enough. I always say... Hitler was more flexible before 1939 than Chamberlain because Chamberlain would not move his policy away, whereas Hitler often did change his position and change his policy. Look at the Nazi-Soviet pact. He realises if he can get a pact with Stalin, he'll isolate Poland and he can attack Poland and the British and the French will do nothing. And again, he's, he, his, his generals say, yeah, but they're so strong. And he says, there's no point in being strong if you don't pick up a gun. And he said, they won't pick up a gun, they'll do nothing. And in fact, he was very sort of prescient in that. He predicted the phony war. What about anti-Semitism? How does that grow and evolve? I mean, in volume one, this, this particular book, you know, the, as you, you've read it, the, the Jewish persecution is a key theme that runs through it. And it's not just, a, 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 it's not, this isn't a biography of Hitler. It's also massive lot on anti-Semitism there. And it sort of shows that, yes, they want to, they want to, they actually, you see the, the sort of, um, the driving of Jews out of public life, gradually driving them out of public life. And of course, I mentioned Victor Klemperer, this, um, you know, professor in Dresden. You sort of see his decline, you know, from being this eminent professor. And then by 1936, he's lost his job. He gets his library card taken away from him, gets his car repossessed. And you see him sort of going down. By 1939, the Gestapo are crawling all over his house, trying to find his ceremonial sword from the First World War. And say, ah, what have you got this for? You know, so you see that as well. And also you see uh, that, you see that Hitler responds to the Jewish question. What happens is, the, the sort of stormtroopers and the activists, they want more action on the Jewish question. And so they, they, they're active in the streets saying to Hitler, you know, you must move more fast on the Jewish question. We see that with the Nuremberg laws. Hitler hasn't planned them. But there's, there's a, a flood of um, anti-Semitic protests saying, you know, why are Jews still able to have citizenship? in the national community, why are they able to still marry Gentiles? And so this is a pressure, and he brings out the Nuremberg Laws. You see it with um, Kristallnacht, the Night of the Broken Glass. He doesn't plan it. Hitler's got really no role in it. It's, it's a response to kind of like, um, you know, the SS. They can see they can exploit this killing of this German diplomat, von Rath, 
by this by this Jewish guy, Greenspan, in, in Paris. They exploit that, and we see the Knight of the Broken Glass. And Goring holds a, a, a meeting the next day, and he says, look, the Jews, he says, why do you think we've got thousands of shops being smashed by people? Because we didn't drive the Jews out of the economy. He said, but now we're going to drive them out of the economy. So you see that, that there's, a, there's a worry there that they, they don't want to move too quickly. Whether, I mean, you know, the, the, the general theme is, you know, was there a straight road to Auschwitz and can we see a sort of movement towards genocide there? I think what you've got to say is, you know, the, the Jewish people are having their dignity taken away from them, their rights taken away from them. You know, in the end, the, 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 you know, and, the, and more radical policies are getting taken against them. And in 1939, in January, he gives his famous speech uh, in the Reichstag, which is a response to President Roosevelt, actually, where he says, if, the, if there's a global war, then it will lead to the annihilation of the Jews. That's the first time he's publicly said that. But interestingly enough, all the way through the Second World War, he constantly goes back to that speech. He constantly says, I promised you what would happen, and now it's happening. Frank, you and I have talked about this on a podcast before. We are living in a time now following a massive economic dislocation uh, 10 years ago with the Great Crash, Great Depression. Uh, but, and we're seeing right-wing movements, extreme political movements on the march all around the world. We're seeing the normalisation of language that we, we previously thought was excluded from, from mainstream discourse. When you look out the world now, are there, are there warning signals, are there echoes of history, or do you think, no, the 1930s are, are a different time and have little to offer us? I mean, I think that, you know, you, there, are some there are some concerns. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, we have to be wary of, of making direct comparisons because, you know, we know that Hitler existed. We know the horror of the death camps and all the rest of it. And I don't think an individual could exist like that again pushing those sorts of policies, genocide openly, in a major industrial state. I don't think that. I hope, I hope that. But of course, there are worries. You know, there are worries. I mean, you know, um, you know only today we hear of uh, a German uh, doctor who, who, was, who was the, I think he was related to the, to the uh, German, former German president, and he was stabbed to death while giving a lecture in Germany. That is worrying. I think, you know, the alt-right in Germany is now getting, you know, nearly 20% of the votes. In Italy, we have the rise of a populist group. We know about Le Pen in France, don't we? Look at Hungary, Orban. You know, Hungary is moving to the right. I think you'd have to say, you know, Trump in America is not a traditional Republican. I don't even think that the formal Republican Party endorses him. Um, so we've got a definite move to the right in America. Um, I think, you know, it's, it stretches the imagination to, to compare him directly with Hitler. Uh, but, obviously, the world is, a, is a, an unstable place. Look at what's going on in Hong Kong. You know, in Hong Kong, we have a group of people who are sort of fighting against, you know, the Chinese government here. You know, it, 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 we see this now a lot. And we've got, of course, climate change. You know, extinction, extinction rebellion, that's going to be important in the future. I think the world, we, we, we'd be foolish to think that, you know, history directly repeats itself because it doesn't. It, it, history evolves from what went before. It's never exactly the same. You know, um, it, it's always different. There's always a building up of the past. But as we know, you know, I think Hitler himself 
in the bunker. He said, I don't think, he said to his secretary, Charles Young, he said, I don't think there'll be any Nazism, he said. I, don't, I think the idea's dead. He said, but in a hundred years' time, the idea of, of a society being united and nationalistic, he said, I think it'll come back. Not in that form, he said, but in another form that's acceptable to the people at that time. So even he could see that it was an evolutionary process. And it's amazing that he did say that right at the end, that, you know, it was dead. And it would, he said, it's dead. There's no way this is, after, after what's happened the last, and the Allies, he said, the stronger power in the East has won. And we know he thought that the power in the East was going to be the dominant power in the future. And we know they, they declined, didn't they? You know, you know yourself, Dan, because you range right across history. And, you know, if, you get, if I got a big map out on the floor here now and I showed you all the places of power, you find they move all over the place. They're in the Mediterranean. Then it moves, you know, you know first of all, it's in, it's in Europe. Then it moves to the Mediterranean. You know, before that, it was sort of in, in the Far East as well. You know, and after that, it moves to North Europe. Then it moves to America. You know, now it moves back to Asia. You know, so, you know, the world is never, the, the, that map, is not static because it's connected by those oceans and within those oceans are people and within those people are ideas and you know and I, I sort of in the end I'm a bit of a Hegelian really that you know it's ideas that drive history and also we, we, we have this you know that the sad thing is you know that you know Hitler might be right he might be right that you know in a hundred years time if you take away all of the genocide and all the rest of it and just bring in extreme nationalism, that might resonate with the population. That's the sad and the worrying aspect of looking at the future rather than at the past. But of course, as historians, I can only tell you about the past. Thank you, Frank. That was fantastic. The book is called The Hitler Years. Pleasure. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.